0: Okay, let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth. Is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And the rest of the chapter here is the message that Isaiah was to bring to the people of Israel. This is a magnificent passage. I feel as though we should all take our shoes off, because we're on holy ground in this passage. We get to follow Isaiah into the very throne room of God himself. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word, even though it gives us the merest glimpse of what you are like and what goes on, the activity around your throne, Father, is it a magnificent thing? There there is no way, no one can do justice to this passage, but Father, it gives us enough To know that you are far different from us. And so, Father, help us now to see who you are, and to see who we are, and to see the great salvation that you have given us in your Son, Jesus Christ. So, this uh, passage starts out it says, In the year that King Uzziah died. So, we've seen in the minor prophets, as Pastor Josh has been going through them the last several months that the minor prophets, and actually all the prophets, use the kings of Israel or the kings of Babylon or whatever as kind of historical markers to say this is something important. And so this is an important historical marker right here. In the year that King Uzziah died. So with us, we choose a president every four years. That didn't happen in Israel. When a king died, his oldest son became king. So when Uzziah was 16 years old, his dad died, and he became king, and he reigned over Israel for the next 53 years. I mean, can you imagine 53 years? I don't know about you. I get nervous every four years when we choose a new president, okay? Maybe it's, you know, maybe, or maybe every, every eight years. We're used to the guy there. Yeah, we know what he's like, but now this new guy is coming in. What's he going to be like? 53 years. If you're under, say, you know, 60 years or so in Judah at this time, Uzziah is the only king you've known. You haven't known anybody else. Uzziah died, and now his son Jotham is going to take over being king. What's Jotham like? What's our country going to be like now? Under Uzziah, Judah enjoyed uh, financial prosperity. The military was strong. Life was good in Judah under Uzziah. And now Jotham's taking over. The good time's going to continue. What's going to happen? We don't know. We do know, though, that Isaiah, he served under five different kings of Judah. And from the stuff that we get from the scripture, it seems like, it doesn't come out and say it, but it seems like that Isaiah was like a government official, like maybe a counselor to the king. He had easy access to the king's. And so Isaiah himself here, probably early in his ministry, he's probably thinking, what is going to happen now? Uzziah has been strong. Our country has been good. And now he's dead. And so I can imagine him walking around in the palace, being maybe somewhat nervous, anxious about the future. And then God breaks in. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This doesn't appear to be a vision of any sort. It appears that flesh and blood Isaiah was transported to the very throne room of God himself, and he's seeing the Lord. If you've seen, you know, the old movies or, you know, look at history, you know that the king's palace was meant to exalt the king. And, uh, and the king, when he was sitting on his throne with all of his regal garb, his crown, his robes, and all that, he would sit on a platform that was above everybody else. And so there were stairs, maybe, to get up to that platform. And that was to show how exalted, how mighty, how powerful this king was. And the higher the throne, well, the more exalted he was, at least in his own mind, And so uh, people would come into the presence of the king and they would bow down before him. They would see the structure. They would see the gold. They would see the magnificent ornaments and all that. They would see the king seated high above them and be in awe of him. Well, same thing here with the Lord. Only his throne is high and lifted up. It's exalted. It's higher than any earthly king. Isaiah was humbled before this. And this is to show, to give a physical representation to Isaiah that the Lord is infinite in his majesty, infinite in his power, infinite in his person. There is nothing or no one like the God whom we serve. And Isaiah was in awe. It says here that he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Kings back in those days, and maybe even kings today, They would wear the regal robe and the train would show, at least in his mind, again, how powerful he was. The longer the train of the robe, the more powerful he was. Maybe uh, those of us who are a little bit older remember Princess Di's wedding. Do you remember that? It was beamed all throughout the world and the train of her robe was like 30 or 40 feet long. It took several people just to carry that thing in there because this was a magnificent wedding that was taking place. But what does it say about God's train? It's just not long. It fills the temple. So I don't know how big the temple was, but could you imagine a, a train of a king's robe filling this entire space, showing that God is infinite in his grace, infinite in his person, there is nothing, not even the entire universe, can contain God. He is above it all. And all of this, Isaiah is awed about. As great and powerful as Uzziah was, and he was, he is nothing when compared to God. And Isaiah saw this right out, uh, right at the start here. And so it says here that uh, he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The uh, the verbs that Isaiah uses here, the Hebrew verbs, are telling us something about God that's really difficult to translate into English. And so these verbs, sitting and lofty and lifted up, these are action verbs. Okay, action. When we see, here, someone sitting, you know, I see you guys sitting out here, it's kind of passive, isn't it? You're just kind of sitting, listening, maybe you're actively engaged, but the word for sitting here is an action verb. It doesn't mean that God is just kicked back on his throne, sitting there, but he's actively sitting. He's a God full of energy. He's a God full of power. He's a God full of vitality. He's a God full of strength, and his very act of sitting is just showing this stuff, and when it says that the robe is filling the temple, it's just not filling the temple, but it has the idea again of there's this incredible movement and motion going on, that it's billowing as it's filling the temple. God is a God of action and power. For a lot of people today, the modern view of God is that he's some half-senile old man. You know, he's kind of out of touch. And he comes along and he says, well, you know, he just kind of chuckles and says, well, you know, boys will be boys. As he's doddering along, doesn't really know what's going on. That's not the God we serve. That's not the God of the Bible. Listen to what Isaiah wrote uh, later. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord? Or at his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him, They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. This is the God we serve. This is the God we worship. This God is not some half-senile old man who's out of touch with reality. He's more like Conan the warrior, you know, who's sitting there full of energy, full of vitality, muscles rippling as as he is exerting his will, over the universe. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim; each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. This is the only time in Scripture that the that we're told of the existence of the seraphim. No other place in Scripture has this. The word seraphim means shining ones or burning ones. These are incredible, magnificent creatures who are in the very presence of God. It says that they are standing above his throne. It could very well be that these seraphim are the closest creatures to the very throne of God himself. There are no other creatures that are closer to God than this. If a seraph would fall, and stand before us, every single one of us would fall on our face because of the horror and the beauty that we saw in them. These are magnificent creatures. They are terrible and horrible and beautiful and grand because they are standing before the very throne of God himself. Each of, the one, each of them have six wings, we're told. With two, he covered his face, Even though these creatures are magnificent and incredible, they pale in comparison to the very glory of God himself, and they cannot even stand to look on God in his glory. With two, he covered his feet. In the scripture, the feet are a symbol of creatureliness. They are not God. They are created beings like you and I. And it's a sign of humility that they are unworthy, even though they're magnificent, even though they're sinless, they are unworthy to be in the presence of God himself. And with two they flew, ready to do God's commands, ready to do his bidding, ready to do his will. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew And one called out to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. God created everything for a purpose. And it seems like that God created the seraphim for the sole purposes of declaring to you and me and to all heaven and to all the universe the holiness of God. It seems like that's what they do. That's all that they do. Pastor Josh called us to worship with Revelation chapter 4. And Revelation chapter 4 is John's description of the same thing here. He called, uh, you know, Isaiah called these beings seraphim. John called them the four living creatures. But both of them are calling out to one another. Let me read from John or Revelation chapter 4 again. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. These eyes are symbolizing their awareness of what's going on, that they are dedicated to their task at hand. They know what they're doing. They don't shy away from what God has created them to do. Eyes all around and within, Day and night, they never cease to say. So this isn't a one-time thing. It seems like from the very instant of their creation and for all eternity, their sole purpose is to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who is, or who was, and is, and is to come. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3 gives the song of the seraphim. One called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's as though if our church was full and we split it down the middle, this side is calling to this side. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. And after they got through saying that, this side of the church would stand up and say to that side, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And the whole earth is full of is full of his glory. And they would sit down and this side would stand up and do the same thing. And this goes on forever and ever and ever for all eternity. And every time they say this, the 24 elders fall down and they cast their, count, their crowns on that glassy sea before God. This is what heaven does. And this is what we are to do as well. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, The whole earth is full of his glory. The word holy has two different meanings in Scripture. The first meaning and the basic meaning is separateness, distinctness, differentness. Holy, holy, holy. God is different from us. Okay? You think you know God? No, you don't. I think I know God? No, I don't. We know the barest minimum of God we know God of what he's revealed in the scripture but we don't know him he is so totally different from us we cannot even comprehend what he is like he is not like us at all I confess and you know probably like you I think sometimes God is just a bigger me only better he's not he's not like us at all he is distinct from anything that we can even imagine The second meaning of holiness has the idea of ethical and moral perfection. He is so perfect and so morally uncorrupted, we cannot even imagine what that is like. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In our modern world, when we want to emphasize something in writing with our word processors, what do we do? We italicize the word. Maybe we'll bold it. Maybe we'll underline it. Maybe we'll do all three, capitalize it. You know, maybe we'll do all four to show that this is really important. Well, Isaiah didn't have a word processor, obviously, back in his days. And so the way that the Hebrews would emphasize something is by repeating words. And so if he wrote here... Holy is the Lord of hosts, that's an emphatic statement. It's a statement of fact. If he would have said, Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We see this in Jesus, don't we? Truly, truly, I say to you. Okay, he's repeating the word. That means you better pay attention to what I'm saying here. Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. That would be in a, a really emphatic statement. That would be really important. It would be extremely strong. That's not what he says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. This is the only attribute of God in all the scripture that is repeated to the third degree. There is none other like this. It is extremely strong. It is extremely emphatic. And what it means is that we simply cannot comprehend with our limited, puny human minds what it means for God to be holy, holy, holy. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, for example, that God is love, love, love. It doesn't say that God is mercy, mercy, mercy or grace 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 it doesn't say that at all but it does say that he is holy 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 i agree with the theologians who say that the basic essence of god is his holiness and every single other attribute of god and action of god flows out of his holiness Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Maybe you know the name Abraham Kuyper. He was a Christian statesman back in the 1800s. But he has this famous quote that says, There is not a square inch and in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything belongs to him. The whole earth is full of his glory. We cannot go anywhere on this earth, be it above the skies, on the ground, below the seas, where God's glory is not shining out. As horrible as the situation is in Venezuela right now, God's glory is shining out in that nation, and he will be glorified in this situation. We don't know how, but he will. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This active God sitting on his throne, his robe billowing out and filling the temple, threatening to push out the walls, The antiphonal call of the seraphim calling back and forth was too much for this mere structure. And so the foundations began to shake. It threatened to fall down. It was too much. It was overwhelming. And then Isaiah says, and the smoke began to rise. Smoke? What's smoke doing there? (laughs) What does this smoke mean? Well, the word that's used for smoke here is used all throughout the Old Testament to describe God's wrath and his anger over sin. The smoke here is God's holiness coming into contact with human sin, and he hates it. He's indignant about it, and he's going to judge it. That's what the smoke means, the smoke Rose from Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, and that same smoke now here is filling the temple, and it fills Isaiah with horror because he realizes in an instant that he is the only sin-stained creature in that room. The seraphim aren't holy, aren't aren't sinful. God isn't sinful. The hosts that are looking on in this, they're not sinful. But Isaiah is, and this holy God, this God who burns with fierce, holy anger about sin, that smoke is now rising up, and his eyes are on Isaiah, and that judgment is starting to come on Isaiah itself. What does Isaiah say? He said, woe is me, for I am lost For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, it says in the ESV, English Standard Version. Woe is me, for I am lost. I think that's a bad translation. Some of your translations may say, woe is me, for I am being ruined. That's better I don't think it really conveys what's going on with Isaiah here. Actually, I think think the King James Version got it right. Woe is me, it says, for I am being undone. I think that's what it means. Sinful Isaiah is standing in the presence of the holy God himself, and it is ripping him apart. He's disintegrating before God. He can't stand it. The very molecules that are holding his body together are starting to break down because of the fierce holiness of God and his wrathful anger against sin. And it rips him apart, and he can't handle it. Woe is me, for I am being, I'm going to use undone here. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. From my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What I find interesting here is of all the sins that Isaiah could have come up with, and there's plenty of them, plenty for you and me, where does he go? To his mouth. The sins of my mouth. Some of you here are in my Sunday school class, the class that Gordon and I teach, and we've been going through the book of James. The book of James has a lot to say about our mouths. And one of the things that's come out is that our mouth, what we say, how we say it, is an expression of what's inside our hearts. And our mouths condemn us in what we say. I would dare say that every single one of us have said things this week that we ought not to have said. And it makes us guilty before God. I am a man of unclean lips. I say things I ought not to say. My lips, my words express what's in my heart, and it's ugly, and it's horrid, and it's putrid. And I live among a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the Lord of hosts, and I realize just how much I fail before him. Then one of the seraphim, it says in verse 6, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that, had taken, that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Sometimes, when I'm getting ready uh, to go to work, I'll stand in front of the mirror, and I'll look at myself, and I'll think, self, I'm sure being a girl is a wonderful thing, but all in all, I'm glad I'm not one. You ever think that, guys? I've been married 37 years, I know that being a girl is tough. It's hard. I think it's harder being a woman than what it is being a man. And one of the reasons I think that is hair care. So, those of us guys who have hair, <laughs> I'm probably like a lot of guys. I take my shower, I dry it off with a towel, maybe I'll run a comb through it, you know, maybe just my fingers, and I'm done. Not my wife, you know, not most women. You know, you don't touch women's hair, right? Even if they're just little girls, you don't mess their hair up. There's something about the woman's hair. And so my dear wife, uh, like, like a lot of women, I'm sure, doing her hair is a process. She dries it, she combs it, she prems it, she does all sorts of things. There's all sorts of tools, all sorts of products. But one of the deadliest things that a woman has dealing with her hair is the curling iron okay my poor wife and i'm sure it's just not true with her my poor wife she has burned her scalp with her curling iron she's burned her face with her curling iron you know she'll have a scar on her cheek what happened i hit it with the curling iron she'll you know burn her arms women am i right i mean is this is this true i mean this is not just unique with her right okay (laughs) I might hear about this later, (laughs) okay? And I say, oh, that looks like it hurts. It does, it's tough being a girl, it is. But as far as I know, she's never taken that hot curling iron and put her lips on it. You know, she's never stuck it in her mouth. She's never done that. I don't know if she's hit her lips with it, but uh, I don't think so. Could you imagine, could you imagine a hot coal? This shining one, this burning one is coming at you with this hot coal, and he sticks it on your lips? How much must that have hurt? Incredible, incredible. The coal here, this flaming coal, is a symbol of forgiveness, okay? This coal, it didn't do anything in and of itself. You know, it's not the coal that saved him. It's a symbol of forgiveness. The coal symbolizes the purifying fire that God brings into the soul in order to save it from itself. I'm sure that Isaiah must have screamed out in agony when that thing hit his lips as the piercing holiness of God invaded his soul, made him realize just how sinful he is and that sin was taken away out of his heart forever. Folks, this passage is all about the gospel. It is the gospel in the Old Testament. God is holy, and we're not. He hates sin. We love sin. We fall short before him, and it requires his act in our lives in order to save us. And once he saves us, we are changed forever. Isaiah was changed forever. Verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, here I am, send me. And God did send him. The book of Isaiah is one of the most magnificent books in all the Old Testament. I think it's probably my favorite Old Testament book. He went to the people of Israel. He's a major prophet, by the way. He went to the people of Israel and had the same message as the minor prophets, only longer. It took him 66 chapters to do it. Isaiah's life from here on out was about serving God. God was at the center of his life. He wasn't going to do his own will now. He was going to do God's will, and that's what salvation does for us. It changes us so that now we are no longer the center of the universe, but God and Christ are. And my life is in submission to him, doing his will, because he has forgiven me. I think there's a couple of takeaways that we can uh, uh, come away with from this passage. And the first one is this. We are forgiven. We are forgiven. Isaiah was forgiven. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Let's say, hypothetically, that, that uh, someone comes into your house, they knock on the door, You don't know this guy. You open the door and he barges in. He goes and he goes into your kitchen, he raids the refrigerator, he takes all your snacks, he plops down in front of the big screen TV there and he's munching down, he's taking the remote and he's going to the channels that he wants and he goes to disgusting channels. He's eating all your food, he's burping, he's being disgusting, he's leaving food all over the place. You try to serve him, you give him stuff, you say, hey, what else do you want? How can I make you comfortable? He just demands and demands and demands and demands more. You can't satisfy him. He's all done, he throws stuff around, he doesn't even give you a thank you, and he goes out the door, slams it, and you're left with a mess. I dare say that we would have some negative thoughts about that guy. I dare say that guy would not be invited back to our home, but guess what, folks? In a far more deeper way, this is exactly what you and I have done to God. He gives and he gives and he gives and he gives, and we don't even say thank you. I mean, in our natural sinful state. We mock him, we ridicule him, we ignore him, we turn our back on him, we think he's not important, and yet, and yet, And yet, he gives and he gives and he gives and he gives to people such as us. And on those days, on that day, he opened your heart and my heart to the gospel of Christ. And we saw the horror of sin and the horror of darkness in our lives. We cried out to him, Oh God, save me, a sinner. And he did. And now our lives have changed. And I hope that your desire now is to serve him and all that. Listen to what God's word has to say. Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far is the east from the west? It's a pretty far away. Isaiah 38, 17. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. It's for his glory that he does this, and I will not remember your sins. Romans 5, 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On the back of my Bible, I have some truths that remind me of who I am in Christ. Because of Christ, I am completely forgiven by God. Completely. Because of Christ, I am fully pleasing to him. Because of Christ, I am totally accepted by God, I am deeply loved by him, and I am absolutely complete in Christ. I'm still growing in him, still maturing in him, but God loves me as much as he does right now as on my worst day as a Christian when I sin before him. His love for me does not change because of Christ. and It doesn't stop here, though. Because Christ has secured these things for us, each son and daughter of God has an unbelievable future before him. And so the first thing we can know is we are forgiven. Isaiah was forgiven. We are forgiven And the second takeaway is this. We will see what Isaiah saw. We as followers of Christ will see what Isaiah saw. Who did Isaiah see? Who did he see? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. And so for the next 800 years, that was the answer. He saw the Lord. Well, fast forward about 800 years, and uh, Jesus comes into the scene And the Apostle John now wrote his great gospel. And so why don't you turn with me to John chapter 12, or flick in your phone, to John chapter 12. So this is late in Jesus' ministry. This is the triumphal entry. He's coming in. It's on the eve of his crucifixion and all that. And he says, uh, you know, hey, I'm going to be lifted up. Let's start at verse 36. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And now John is giving us his commentary on Jesus' ministry. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed? This is Isaiah 53, one. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's about Jesus. Therefore, they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, and this is from Isaiah 6, 9, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Listen, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who did Isaiah see? Isaiah saw the exalted Christ. That's who he saw. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He had an eternal existence. Isaiah saw the Son of God high and lifted up. He saw the eternal Christ's robe filling and billowing the temple. The seraphim were singing of Jesus, holy, 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 Is the Lord of hosts and the whole earth is full of his glory. It was the smoke of the sun's judgment that was rising up and going for Isaiah, and it was the future Savior who dispatched the seraphim to touch that coal on his lips and to declare that he was forgiven and atoned for in his sin. This is Jesus who did this. An amazing thing. We will see what Isaiah saw. Another book from John, 1 John chapter 3 says this. 1 John 3, starting at verse 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is because it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We will be holy, holy, holy. I mean, not to the same degree, of course. We're not God. But we will be holy. We will be distinct. We will be morally pure. Why? because we shall see him as he is. We will see what Isaiah saw. We will see what John saw. We will be in that multitude of throng, people casting down their crowns before Christ as we sing, holy, holy, holy to the Lamb of God. But listen to what John goes on to say, and everyone who, th- who thus hopes in him, Everyone who has that hope of standing in the throne of God and Christ for all eternity purifies himself as he is pure. Folks, it says here that you and I are to be holy in this world. You and I are to be separate and distinct from the world around us. There is to be a difference in us. We are not to let the world's thinking influence us. We are not to let the world's unbelief and cynicism and sin and everything else influence what we think and believe and what we do and don't do in this world. There is to be a distinction. In the New Testament, it says to all the saints in Corinth, for example, well, that word saint is the word holy, holy ones. We are to be distinct and you and I are to be morally pure. We are to be honest with our words. We are to be kind with our words. We are not to give in to our own sinful desires, but we are to be holy before him. Ephesians chapter one, verse three says that he called us to be holy and blameless in his sight in this world. You are to be morally pure. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And you and I are to be imitators of this holy God. We will see what Isaiah saw, but there's one thing we won't see. You know what it is? There's one thing that Isaiah saw that we won't. What is it? It's the smoke. We won't see the smoke. Judgment won't have any place in our eternal home because our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, has atoned for it, and he has forgiven us, and sin will be no more in that place with Christ and the company of the redeemed who are worshiping him. What a great God we serve, isn't it? Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage out of Isaiah. We thank you that it shows us just how incredibly magnificent you are, but also how incredibly gracious you are as well. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that we would indeed be holy in this world and that we would live for you and that you would be the most important thing in our lives. We pray for these things in Jesus' name, amen.